Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing and advertising. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. This episode is the most eagerly anticipated part two since the Godfather movie series, being the second half of our chat with a man who is arguably the don of behavioural economics in 2019, the one and only Rory Sutherland. We bravely stopped Rory with a loud gong in part one. There really was no other way. But we now return to our chat with the vice chairman of Ogilvy UK as we talk about an event that is the jewel in the behavioural economics crown, Nudgestock. If you haven't caught part one, make sure you do as it was packed with great informative stuff on advertising, marketing, magic, branding fish and a whole lot more. But now... It's time to sit back and enjoy the return of the Rory. Can we plug Nudstock? Because Nudstock has been plugged in previous episodes, not least by ourselves, but by Richard Shotton and Stephen Colgan, who's, who's been on stage a couple of times at Nudstock. He's a wonderful guy. Both wonderful guys. Fantastic guys. Absolutely are. But, but as we're talking to the front man, it would be amiss of me not to bring up Nudgestock. So can you tell our listeners a bit more about it? It will it will be somewhere on the coast of England, or at least somewhere outside London, but accessible from London, on the second Friday of 2020. That will be the next one. Okay. So the date doesn't vary. Second Friday in June. Sorry, did I say the second Friday of 2020? God. Second Friday in June of 2020, somewhere within easy reach of London. Possibly by the sea, second Friday. Uh, possibly by the sea. So we're not definitely remaining coastal. Uh, well, we're, we may we may have outgrown all seaside venues, with the possible exception of the Brighton Centre, which is another uh, another consideration. But let's go and see. Okay. What we try and do is we get really interesting non-standard thinkers from um, uh, behavioural science, behavioural economics. Um, uh, including actually people like Gerald Ashley, a great guy in the city who talks about the difference between risk and uncertainty um, and how fundamentally different rules apply for intervening in those two, those two conditions. Um, and we get uh, what you might call the top flight of people from around the world, uh, fly them in, and it's, they speak to a mixed audience of marketers, advertising people, Ogilvy employees, their own clients, um, and also simply we keep the ticket price low. That's one of the reasons we're outside London. Um, uh, you know, students and indeed outside people who are just interested in this stuff. Okay. Now, the vital thing there is that it's an, a kind of annual reminder that uh, a lot of progress is being made in this area. I mean, it will never be the kind of progress, I think, that leads to complete silver bullet stuff. But it's important to remember, by the way, that progress in science doesn't only consist in eureka. It also consists in maybe it isn't like that at all. You know, the rejection of bad ideas or the rejection of false certainty is as much part of the scientific process as the achievement of certainty. And um, 
it's a fantastic mix of practitioners. So we had the behavioral science team from Uber speaking. We had the chief economist of Spotify speaking. It will be a mixture of practitioners and academics, um, uh, all essentially communing around the idea that I think there's a possibility to elevate both the stature and the efficacy and the influence Probably the influence is the most important because without influence, it's very difficult to be inf- effective, okay, of marketing style thinking or psychologically led thinking and complexity led thinking genuinely deserves to have, I would say, five times the influence over everything from public policy making to business decision making that it currently does. And, and so I'm dedicated to the idea that. Um, I'd also say that the interesting thing about people in marketing and advertising, um, Amos Tversky used to say that what Daniel and I do is we take things which are already known instinctively by advertising executives and car salesmen, and we put them in a recognizable, codifiable form. And in the same way, what Robert Mm. Cialdini, who I think is one of the real greats in this area, he embedded himself as an academic with sales forces to find out what they did to change people's minds. And he discovered lots of the practices varied from one sector to another, but some things seemed to have universal persuasive power. Um, Interestingly, Mm. by the way, those things, Cialdini's big six principles, are weirdly contradictory. This is my point, by the way, that, you know, depending on context, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. So scarcity sells, but so does social proof. To give an example, okay? So, I mean, that's another reason why I think people have been messed up in attempts to make marketing into a science, because there are actually two very effective ways to sell something. Not many people have one of these, so it must be great. And lots of people have these, so it must be pretty good. And equally, it's based on on the idea that consumers are maximizers and not satisficers. Uh, yeah, no, that was that was the basis of my talk. Now, so I've plugged Nudstock, I hope, for next year. What I'm also saying is we will shortly be pitching up the talks online. Ah, brilliant. So keep an eye. Um, um, I'm just trying to think where the best place would be. It'll be on YouTube. So if you Google Nudstock 2019 on YouTube, the talks by what, what, one of the people we've been trying to get for the last six years, Gerd Gigerenza, who is one of the world's leading experts on decision-making under uncertainty, uh, um, maximize, maximizing versus satisfying, and the use of heuristics. My contention that most humans most of the time are trying to minimize variant downside variance more urgently than they are trying to optimize upside expectation, uh, which I think also explains why people pay a premium for brands. I don't think we choose brands because we think they're great. I think we choose brands because we think they're definitely not terrible. Um, And I think uh, marketers spend far too much time worrying about the addition of positives rather than the removal of negatives uh, in many respects. And I think uh, by looking at what humans, and I mean specifically humans, are instinctively trying to do um, and what evolution has taught humans to do, we can understand human motivation and indeed human happiness rather better and therefore design a world um, for human perception rather than for sort of objective purity. And um, the um, uh, it's interesting because in the um, uh, where that sits, it's quite interesting because in the U, um, if you're a nudger in the US, it tends to mean you're a Democrat. 
and indeed Obama picked up on the nudge unit, and indeed it was headed by someone fantastic called Maya Shanker, who now works for Google. Weirdly, on the political um, spectrum in the UK, nudging seems to be um, uh, a conservative or possibly Lib Dem, but but it seems to be a slightly right of centre uh, um, area of interest. So in terms of libertarian paternalism, the American right have such a horror of paternalism that they regard this as 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 horrible whereas of course the libertarian right in the uk like the fact that it gives government something to do without actually curtailing human freedoms my guess would be that a, a moderate labor party might be equally um uh, amenable to this um a corbynite one is less likely to be because I would I would argue that that very very left wing thing. It's very interesting to notice how male it is, isn't it? For the most part, but it's it it's all about this sort of false certainty of uh, of having some sort of left wing theory that explains everything. But you know, it's very interesting. This very interesting thing. If you look at all those theories that supposedly explain everything, okay. If you take Adam Smith, you take Immanuel Kant, you take John Stuart Mill, uh, you take. Um, uh, and Nietzsche, okay, uh, you could add in Jeremy Bentham, right? All those people are really weird, aren't they? I mean, like Adam Smith lived with his mum, you know, <laughs> Newton died a virgin, Jeremy Bentham uh, was totally batshit weird, uh, Immanuel Kant, OCD, okay? Very interesting question, why do we borrow our theories of life from people who are really real outliers? We should. What we should want is a philosophy of life from Mick Jagger, shouldn't we? That's you know, you know, you know. We should we should look for people who are actually really, really successful in a Darwinian kind of way, and we should try and model ourselves on yeah. them. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, there is a guy. I, I think there is a guy who does this, by the way, which is Shakespeare. I think the um, uh, you know the uh, the guy who is probably the best behavioral science scientist is a kind of you know in terms of being a complete human being that's what we should aspire to in leading our lives and understanding life uh you know that's the kind of role model we should have not the kind of weird narrow reductionist theory which tends to come out from people who are um massively non-neurotypical and um Uh, you know, it, it, it's. Um, it, I, I just asked the question. You know that that if you look at the strange thing that people who come up with successful universal theories for things themselves seem decidedly weird. So anyway, um, sorry, I, I digress. So anyway, Google nudge stock twenty nineteen on uh, and search for it on YouTube, and within a, within a month or so, uh, Gigarenza's talk will be up. We're absolutely delighted. A fantastic talk by Sir Paul Collier. Wonderful talk by Tricia Wang. Fantastic talk by Stephanie Johnson. Yeah. Um, a whole bunch of people speaking there. Now, I think again, a very simple thing: a change in perspective is worth forty IQ points, as a guy famously said, and I can't remember his name. Very great expert in um, uh, interface design. And I think I think that's what this is all about. That actually, what what we need in policy making, what we need in business, is a the at least the capacity to flip perspective from time to time. And I think all the dominant ideologies, whether the neoliberal one on the right or the kind of trotty one on the left, um, uh, you know, actually are hugely deleterious to the prospect of flipping perspective. 
and what you see in Paul Collier is, you know, what I think every nudge stock speaker has in common is they have this capacity to go. Robert Frank is another speaker this year. The capacity to go, you could look at this as this, or you could look at it like that. Now, a very interesting case of Robert Frank's is he argues that the rich should actually be perfectly content to pay more tax because rich people are mostly preoccupied in buying property where they're competing for that property with other rich people. Okay, so if you actually reduce the wealth of the rich, you improve the public environment without really making the competition for rivalrous goods any worse. And he says that people assume that when you get poorer, weirdly, when you get poorer and everybody else gets poorer, this is among the rich, okay, your welfare doesn't suffer very much. Your welfare suffers if you get poorer and nobody else does. But because tax actually evens out the impoverishment, for people above a certain threshold of wealth, um, in fact, they may not experience any net loss in happiness. On the contrary, they may experience a gain. That was a fantastic talk, actually. And I think that alongside Tricia Wang discussing mm. thick data as opposed to big data was, a, was, was, was certainly a highlight for us this year. No, I mean, I, 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 we, we will find it difficult to top that in 2020. I'll be absolutely honest with yeah. you. It's one of the things yeah. I'm worrying about now. Well, I'm sure we'll manage somehow. I think at some point we'll have to start inviting people back because we've never had anybody speak twice apart from me, but I do the kind of introduction blurb, okay? And we've never had anybody speak twice, and I think at some point uh, we'll have to do that because, uh, you know, I want to hear, you know, Nassim spoke at Nudge Dot number one eight years ago. I think we need to hear, you know, he's since written two books, you know, okay? I think we, yeah. need, to hear, I think we need to hear the latest work. So I think that's one thing we'll have yeah. to do again. That wouldn't put anyone off, Rory. Well, no, I think it's wrong like comedy, isn't it? The whole question of, you know, at what speed do you recycle your material? And uh, There was one comedian who, who made a terrible mistake because they thought when they first started in startup and stand up, they thought it had to be new every time. <laughs> <laughs> now, the, the interesting thing is uh, in comedy, I think that the standard rule is every year you're over the course of a year, you should end up with a new routine. In other words, in a year's time, your your routine should borrow only maybe 10% or less from the routine you had a year ago. But nonetheless, you know, trying to give every time you go, <laughs> you go to a new venue, first of all, the repeat audience uh, is small. Secondly, in, in all honesty, a lot of people don't mind hearing the same joke twice. No. What does kill you as a comedian is you go on TV, you see, because it's the huge dilemma for a stand-up comedian because you gain a huge level of fame and your ability to fill large venues goes up, but at the same time you burn all your material because people grudge a bit. I'm not entirely, but people yeah. certainly wouldn't pay 50 quid to go and turn up and see a routine that they'd seen in its entirety on television. No, this is true. Although I have made that mistake a couple of times, I must admit. Uh, tell me how. <laughs> um, I went to see, I've seen two comedians on their on this identical tour, once at the start and once near the end. <laughs> and it was exactly the same, was it? Exactly the same. There, there was a couple of improv bits, but yeah, it was exactly the same. But to be honest, I enjoyed it just as much the second time. So, Well, this is the weird thing. I mean, there's also the little, the little bits of refinement um, uh, Stuart Lee writes about in his book about his own comedy, which is, you know, describing, I think, Gary Lineker like a velvet owl. 
Now, apparently, <laughs> that emerged through lots and lots of experimentation. And part of the reason, of course, is that, uh, you know, the, the really hot comedians will, sli- if, if you're really interested in this stuff, looking, seeing them at the beginning and seeing them at the end and seeing the small changes they've made. Yeah. It's rather like, um, interestingly, um, I always remember Douglas Adams used to dissect paragraphs of P.G. Woodhouse because what fascinated him with P.G. Woodhouse was that you could take a P.G. Woodhouse paragraph or sentence and if you just changed a word slightly or you flipped flipped the word order slightly it was no longer funny and he'd spend a whole load of time dissecting exactly what it is that made the sentence perfectly funny and unimprovable Mm. um and uh, it's a really interesting lesson so you know woodhouse i think which i've always noticed in comedy is the david ogilvy was the advertising copyright equivalent the use of one fancy word generally you write simply but chucking in the odd sort of four syllable word somehow can make something seem funnier and um uh, you know so you know understanding those funny little tricks uh and how they work there's a great book actually by jimmy carr and another author who was an advertising copywriter the co-author i can't remember her name um uh, which is all about an analysis of humor and um, called the Naked Jape, it might be called, but it's um, uh, it's a it, that's really interesting in itself too, because understanding the fact that there's, you know, again in humour there are butterfly effects. You know, uh, it's always fascinated me if you take that ad for Cronenberg, which featured um, Eric Cantona. Yes, um, and he's pretending to be a hop farmer, not a footballer, in order to pull attractive women in the bars of yeah. Alsace. Okay. Yes, and he breaks the fourth wall and makes this little knowing conspiratorial smile to the camera at the end when he says, "Of course, I'm a farmer." You see, yeah. and now his ability—the ad stands or falls. Now, luckily, I think Cantona, being I think one of those people who is kind of, you know, uh, 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 he, he's a kind of wide genius, isn't he? He's one of those people mm. who, um, you know, had he not been a footballer, he would have been pretty great at something else. You know, I don't think you'd say that about yeah. all footballers, but I would suspect that of yeah. Eric. You know, um, and um, the the interesting thing is his ability to carry that off essentially was the make or break thing for the ad, and you you, mm. you get that in all forms of communication. Um, and um, it's interesting actually that. Um, um, uh, we're seeing an increasing number of comedians being elected, and I include Boris in this, I think. But, you know, if you look at Beppo in Italy or the new Ukrainian president, who I think is a comedian or stand-up comedian or something, the fact that we're seeing that in politics is kind of weird and interesting. That um, maybe what it is is that people in comedy know how to communicate in a way that people who simply operate within the technocratic technosphere have, be- have lost the talent. I actually concluded uh, with Richard, on Richard Shotton's episode that Boris was rather a physical embodiment of the pratfall effect. Well, I mean, it's very interesting the fact that you have people with visible failings uh, suddenly being appealing, which is that if you think about it, you look at the governmental class now and the homogeneity of kind of, you know, they're all thin, they're all middle class, they're all well-educated, you know, they're all kind of that sort of middle class smug, um, I've got it together. Uh, thing and the appeal of a bit of pratfall uh, rightly or wrongly is un- is perfectly understandable but my wife interestingly is a vicar and a, a priest and a hospital chaplain 
And while she did her training, she was sort of advised by another vicar, um, as, as makes sense. And the other vicar, fascinatingly, a woman in her 50s, I suppose, smoked. And she said the most surprising thing to um, my wife, which was that it is hugely valuable in talking to people with problems that you have a failing yourself. Because if you come across as too perfect, your capacity to empathize or give advice to someone uh, is much, much more difficult because it becomes interpreted as kind of patronizing um, uh, de haut en bas um, talking down. Whereas if you have a failing of your own where you have to nip out another, you know, cheeky Rothmans halfway through the uh, uh, the thing, it somehow makes the whole thing much, much easier. Now, asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us inviting them in. So we'll start with copywriter Lucy. And she asks, are there any psychological hacks mums and dads can apply to parenting? Yes. Um, that's a great question, actually. Uh, you, one of the things that fascinates me about behavioral science is that it's scalable in a way that advertising isn't. So the same patterns that can be of use in, for example, uh, you know, selling diapers or whatever it may be, can also be applicable at the very smallest level. And you know the same peculiarities that emerge when people make a major decision like buying a house can affect minor ones. So one great one with children is you um, placebo choice or indeed the you know possibly even dummy uh, options. But if you say I want you to go to bed at X, an, an alternative way to do it is to leave the person with some agency, the child in this case. And you say, for example, you can either eat this and then go to bed or you can um, eat something else and then go to bed, okay? Um, the fact that there's no choice over going to bed, reframing um, um, a question but leaving the other person with some agency tends to focus on the area over which they do have control rather than the area over which they don't. And that, by the way, applies to children. It also applies to voters, adults, all sorts of things. I mean, one of the great rants I have about tax is that it gives you no choice over where the money goes. Now, I think people would f feel fundamentally differently about paying incremental tax if there were a degree of hypothecation allowed, which the Treasury resists completely. But I think this is a mistake. Um, and uh, anyway, psych psychologically, it's a, a huge mistake. Now... Um, you know, I'd also say that, you know, the TV license should probably come with two or three levels of option now for the BBC. You know, I would pay the maximum amount and get the complete back catalogue of BBC programmes dating back to, you know, Alva Liddell or whatever. Other people could pay less and get slightly less. I think that would be reasonable. Um, but no, uh, th other things, for example, are very simply, okay, um, uh, you know, uh, Jiu-Jitsu teaches this as well, in a sense. Okay, if my wife wants me to take the rubbish out, okay, the bad way is wait while I'm watching TV in my pants and tell me to take the rubbish out, okay, which is something which we... Now, the alternative is simply leave the bag of rubbish by the back door and say nothing. Now, when I'm by the back door, I already have my shoes on and I'm dressed by definition because I'm about to leave the house. The rubbish is there already, and I would actually feel like a prat not carrying it downstairs. So there's there's a really important point here in in changing behaviour, which is 
don't just say, I want this to happen and tell people. Wait for a moment at which actually it doesn't require persuasion at all. It's simply a natural course of action. And that applies to getting someone to take the rubbish out. It also, you know, is is how building societies sell um, uh, home insurance with a mortgage, you know, because it seems entirely natural at that point, whereas trying to sell the same thing in isolation is much, much harder. Yeah, that's a great example. Sticking with wives then, my, my wife, Sophie, has actually pleaded me to put this question to you. So she's asked, what's your favourite alcoholic drink? We know it's not wine. She's then said, and type of gin. So I think she's anticipated gin being the answer. It's not only gin, by the way. Um, By the way, I'm not entirely alone in this. Julia Childs, the fantastic American food writer and writer on French food, um, she was asked, what's your favourite wine? And used to reply, gin. Um, <laughs> um, I, li- I like cocktails and mixed drinks. Funnily enough, my favourite, I don't really have a favourite drink um, because... Um, I, I quite like a degree of variety, including wine, by the way. My my big beef, my my hatred of wine really stems from the fact that it's served without food, which, by the way, very few French or Italian people would just stand around at a party drinking red wine without a meal, okay? You know, you'd have champagne, that's fine, okay? You could have some sort of care thing, which the French might make, uh, or that thing where you chuck, you know, uh, something into sparkling wine. But actually, red and white wine without food is shit. Okay. And I, uh, by the way, it's also shit red and white wine, typically, when it's served that way. Um, it, it's also really, really annoying because um, it doesn't really, and red and white is, is, is fake choice. Okay. You get to choose the color, but basically, the drink's kind of the same. So I think that's an example of, you know, placebo choice, which everybody goes, oh, well, I've chosen to drink red. So therefore, that's what I wanted to drink. When in reality, had there been any other option, we would have had something else. Um, I do have a very good tip for lunchtime drink, uh, which is slow gin and tonic. Now, slow gin is actually very lucrative for the gin makers, so they'll be grateful to me here, because it's taxed significantly less, but tends to be priced at the same price as gin, um, because it's only got 20% uh, half the alcoholic strength. Uh, It's only uh, 20% alcohol, not 40, typically. But for that reason, and for the coloration, it makes a great lunchtime drink um, because um, it's essentially, you know, um, uh, less alcoholic than wine, for example, per volume. But for whatever reason, it doesn't feel like it. So I think there's a psychological element where you derive some of the pleasure of drinking um, gin and tonic uh, in terms of general merriment, but the soporific effect seems to be reduced. Um, so that would be slow, slow gin and tonic would be a would would definitely be a bit of a um, a, 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 a useful tip. Of which, by the way, most of the great, of course, as an Ogilvy person, Sipsmith is obviously the first one you should buy. But other brands <laughs> are available. Yes, yes, and and therein is the reason why they're often in the nudge stock goodie bags. Funny that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Did you enjoy it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It was. It was. A, it, oh, yeah, we, we love it. We go every year as an agency. Um, and we've it, it's our highlight of the year on the event schedule. That's fantastic. Oh, wonderful to hear. Now we, I mean, what I'd like to think is it's the it's the physical embodiment of Jeremy Bullmore's point that the best books about advertising aren't always about advertising. And so we want a conference which is partly, not exclusively, for advertising people, which isn't only about advertising. Because I think the great problem of the advertising marketing industry is it has become a bubble. 
It's become self-reflective. It's become obsessed with peer group approval, which then creates a kind of homogeneity. And the, the great discovery I made in my sort of 20-year quest was that actually um, there are people in science, uh, including behavioral economists and indeed uh, evolutionary scientists, who understand advertising very, very well. Uh, the people who don't understand it, economists instinctively hate it, finance people instinctively hate it, because their model of the world is predicated on the assumption that we already know what we want. And as a result, they see advertising at best as a kind of necessary evil and as a cost to be minimized. They don't see it as a source of value creation. Whereas, as you will have seen from my talk at Nudstock, Ludwig von Mises, the Austrian school of economists, if you go and talk to people who are a bit Austrian, you know, Hayekian economists, they believe that marketing mm. is as much a source of value creation as manufacturing is. Because in order for something to actually make someone want to buy it, you can't simply construct the thing. You have to construct the context in which the thing is, is saleable. Just as you have to design a restaurant so that meals served there are enjoyable. The final part of the interview then, Rory, is, is our four pertinent poses which we put to all of our guests. So number one, what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, very simply, um, don't have too much of a plan um, because nothing significant uh, that ever happens in your life was ever really anticipated. And that if you obsess too much about your plan, uh, weirdly, you're narrowing down optionalities. The other thing which I've given before as advice is try to be quite good at two things rather than brilliant at one, um, simply because if you try and be the best tennis player in the world, you're almost certainly going to fail. Whereas if you have two related talents, they have to be, they have to overlap slightly, you know. Um, but if you have two interests which overlap, the one can feed off the other and vice versa. And secondly, you have a combination of talents, which is much, much rarer than a sole talent. So, you know, um, in, a, in a weird kind of way, it's very interesting to see how, um, uh, you know, uh, in the longer term, I'd argue that people who have a foot in more than one camp uh, tend to have more room to maneuver. You also, by the way, have, yeah, you have much more wheel room. I think that's vitally important. And it's worth remembering, by the way, when you look at people who are really, really successful in a predefined field, um, we look at them and we fail to account for the 150 people who tried to be them and failed. And uh, th this, by the way, is really important because if you think about it, if you think if you look at parenting, um, there's a whole gig for, you know, if you're Serena Williams's dad, okay, and you basically trained your children to be Wimbledon champions from birth and you succeeded, okay, there's a whole place on stage for you to go up to say to Americans, look how basically how really, really trying and caring causes you to be able to succeed in extraordinary ways, blah, blah, blah. And Americans believe this shit. I mean, to an astoundingly horrible degree. Uh, Americans believe in personal agency and the extent that effort is rewarded. I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe for 70 years in American history, it was kind of true. Maybe the place was, in a sense, so economically extraordinary that there was a period where basically if you had a you know, reasonable amount of ability and you tried pretty hard, you would be reasonably, you know, you would be successful. But it's worth remembering, okay, that, you know, 
for every person who had made it to the Wimbledon final with that kind of upbringing, there are probably five kids at the moment who are in a crack den somewhere, uh, still cursing their dad for forcing them to play tennis too much. And the uh, equally, don't forget, you know, if 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 you were, you know, if you want to go and give a talk on stage in the United States about how hard work led to success for your children, say, or how you knew what you did in your childbearing that made your kids so successful, there's a market for really ambitious dads to stand up and talk. Now, Ronald Reagan's dad was kind of deadbeat alcoholic, right? He was never going to get a speaking gig going, basically, I just went down to the pub and, ooh, look, my kid's the president of the United States, okay? <laughs> yeah, there isn't a market for that narrative. So the narratives that prevail are disproportionately uh, those which lie around single-minded intent and focus. And um, you know, no one's going to stand on stage saying, you know, ooh, you know, look, I'm a multimillionaire. That was lucky, wasn't it? Okay. You know, now, you know, if we're honest, Robert Frank, by the way, his book, uh, Success and Luck, uh, is a must read because you know, one thing I think, which is very interesting, um, it's a very interesting question, the whole question around luck, because it's sort of a left-wing point, which I think rightly it is, which is to say that, look, if the people who are disproportionately successful are lucky, okay, um, the extent to which they deserve their insane wealth may be slightly diminished. And, of course, to Americans, that's an absolute... Um, anathema to say that on the other hand Nassim Taleb makes an interesting point which is if you have a market system or sorry an economic system where luck isn't rewarded okay then you miss out on 70% of improvement because if you imagine a world where we weren't allowed to use the scientific advances that had emerged through luck We'd have no radar, we'd have no penicillin, we'd have no antibiotics, we'd have no microwaves, uh, we'd have, um, I mean, we wouldn't be allowed to talk about the microwave background because that was discovered by luck, I think, as well. Okay, so there'd be loads and loads of things which, which essentially wouldn't exist. We'd be living in a kind of, you know, Edwardian era of science, okay? Now, in the same way, if a guy who's, to be honest, merely lucky opens a restaurant which turns into a massive success, we need a mechanism that rewards that and him, A, for taking the risk in the first place, for doing something uncertain, but B, we need it so that lucky restaurants prevail and unlucky restaurants fail. Now, so if you had a restaurant which is founded by the professor of restaurants at the, at, you know, at um, Catering University, okay, and that fails, and you have some total blag artist who happens to start a restaurant in the right place at the right time and it's a huge success... In the Soviet Union, they keep the first restaurant going and kill the second one, okay? The market mm. mechanism is very largely there to make sure that the valuable discoveries that emerge through luck and happenstance survive, whereas unlucky ideas, which have been promoted with all the best reasons and arguments in the world, but simply don't work for whatever reason, we need those to die. Now, that, again, if you want to make a really, really sort of, if you want to totally fetishize the entrepreneur, that isn't a, comp that isn't a popular narrative. But I think it's, it's quite largely true, to be honest. Yeah. My, da my dad was in a property business where, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, he had a very, very good idea and essentially was killed by a property crash. Uh, financially, which was entirely outside his control. Now, Nassim Taleb has a very good way of framing that, which is that an entrepreneur who fails in business 
uh, is no more to be criticised than a soldier who dies in battle. Yeah, that's a lovely way of framing it. You know, you've, you, you, you've, taken, you've taken the chance, you've tried. In many cases, the reasons for your failure are entirely beyond your control or they're simply beyond human comprehension. You know, I mean, I, I mean, lots of things. You know, if you think about it, Dyson, Starbucks. Um, uh, I, I mean, Coca-Cola in Britain. Okay, Coke had come to me in like 1930 or whatever and said, "We want to launch this drink in Britain." Well, first round to me, it tastes a bit funny. You know, I prefer Vimto. <laughs> you know, I, I, I much prefer Vimto. What's the other one? Vimto or um, uh, depending on where you live in the country, it used to be um, there were those two British soft drinks, weren't there? There was um, Tizer. That was it, Tizer of Imto. So we no, 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 it doesn't taste as nice as Tizer. And then we go, look, we come up with a load of reasons. Say, look, the thing you've got to understand, Yanks, is that the thing with, you know, is that Britain, we drink tea and we drink tea, okay? We don't have a major prohibition hang up. So we drink a hell of a lot of alcohol. <laughs> if we want a cold drink, lots of them have alcohol in, okay? Um, uh, basically, uh, the climate here is shit. Okay, and ice is treated like a luxury good. So the likelihood that Coke's going to be successful in the UK just, you know, doesn't strike me as very plausible. So, you know, if I'd been, a, you know, a Red Bull, for God's sake, you know, who would have recommended that? And so in many cases, the, the thing that determines success may be something so psychologically weird or counterintuitive that it's simply unrealistic for anybody to actually identify it in advance. Mm. I, mean, I absolutely love, I love Coke as a drink. Um, I also think, by the way, people always criticise it, but wait a second, okay. If you if you are trying not to drill, drink alcohol and you're in any social setting, what other drink is there? Let's be absolutely honest, okay? Mm. So before we start going, oh, Coke, it's the, it's the embodiment of evil, blah, 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 blah. Okay, yeah, that may be true. If you talk to anybody who doesn't drink, they're really, really grateful for the existence of Diet Coke. Because they said the problem with... The problem with middle-class bloody Brits is they have these parties, they go, we won't have Coca-Cola, will we do it? <laughs> so what we'll have is... Now, actually, in fairness, those elderflower drinks are kind of okay, in fairness. But if you have a party and you don't want to drink because you're driving and the fuckers, all they'll serve is orange juice and water, <laughs> I want to punch them in the face. Because orange juice is perfectly tolerable for the first one, but after that, it's a children's drink. It's too sweet. Water's fucking boring beyond a certain point. Now, don't get me wrong. If I'm really thirsty, water's a great drink. Okay, but basically water's sodding dull for a four hour party. And so a party where you can't smoke and the only bloody drinks on on on, um, uh, you know, on offer are orange juice and water, you're imposing an extraordinary uh, unkindness on people who either need to drive a car or don't want to drink alcohol. And um, you know, so let's you know, let's be clear about this. I mean, Coke in the uh, in the beverage pantheon, it does operate. It does uh, occupy a space which it's necessary for something to occupy. Yeah, it does. It totally does. Rory, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be, and why? I wouldn't banish anything, uh, really, um, because I don't think it's that kind of industry. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know. The vocabulary would be the first one, I think, which is we need, we can't go on. I'm, I'm, now this is, I'm going to be really careful here because Ogilvy's main line is we, you know, make brands matter. I'm not 100% comfortable with the use of the word brand, except in a marketing context, because I don't think people outside, well, I don't think anybody understands it actually, but I don't think anybody outside the industry feels comfortable with the word. And I think. Now that that's an extreme case. I think brand is okay. 
I mean, you know, ultimately. But I think most marketing vocabulary is t- is fine. The best phrase, Alistair Graham, a very good copywriter, said, marketing, voca- marketing vocabulary, he said, is like the vocabulary of astrology, which is if you're talking to fellow believers, it sounds fine. If you're talking to anybody else, you sound like a lunatic. <laughs> and I think that's a really, really important point. Um, because um, as I, I've, I've rephrased that by saying, you know, going to a finance director and talking about brand iconography is like going to the head of thoracic surgery at um, you know, St. Mary's Hospital and going, let's all trust to the healing power of the crystal. I mean, it just sounds <laughs> completely stupid. And so whereas every other area of business can ally itself with some recognizable science, we've been operating alone with our own stupid vocabulary. And so aligning ourselves with you know, a mixture of complexity, science, understanding of chaos and um, uh, decision-making under uncertainty. Yeah, they're fringe sciences, but they're sciences. And the one gift they have to give to us above anything else is a vocabulary which makes us sound um, at least... You know, the fact that actually, very interesting insight, okay, most advertising end... No, not most. Many great advertising end lines contain an area, an element of self-contradiction. You know, Guinness, good things come to those who wait. There's a negative in there. You've got to wait for your pint to be poured. Uh, If you take, for example, you know, we're number two, so we try harder. Now, it's very, very difficult talking to a totally logical person to explain um, to explain why you'd want to put a negative in an advertising line. But the pratfall effect, or what Robert Cialdini calls something else, it's the idea of the admitted negative, is actually a potent persuasive vehicle. Yeah, well said. Uh, Rory, so aside from alchemy, are there any books that you would recommend to our listeners? So we've had two come up already. So we've had Complexity in the Art of Public Policy, and we've had Success and Luck by Robert Frank. Um, I'd read the Taleb canon. I'd probably start at the beginning with, I think, Fooled by Randomness. Okay. Um, I, I think that's important. Basically, I'm in favour of all books which, not necessarily claiming to be a secret, you know, the, the 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 solution to everything, at least give you the power to think about something in a different frame. And so I'd also include Robert Frank's um, The Darwin Economy. Um, I'd include, actually, The Mating Mind and Spent by Jeffrey Miller. Very interesting book. Um, I'd include, uh, actually, although I disagree with him on a lot of things, The Selfish Gene, um, Deceit and Self-Deception by Robert Trivers, The Selfish Gene, or similar works. You could look at other works by, um, uh, there's a a book by the geneticist, I think, called Steve Jones, called, I think it's called River Out of Eden, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, but I think, to understand evolutionary biology is important because it's a it's a the first attempt to understand sort of complex emergent properties of things as distinct from simple physical universes it's also if you think about it darwin's is a theory about how things change not about how things are and i think for behavior change and for marketing understanding how the world changes and how therefore one can influence it perhaps or at least simply understand how you can spot trends, spot what is happening, is a more important thing, talent, than having a theory about what would be an ideal world, because you might not be able to get from A to B. And so, you know, that's one of my theories about, you know, I mean, if you think about it, Marxism started as a theory about what was going to happen. It wasn't, it was really a predictive book rather than a, rather than a prescriptive book. I think that understanding is 
uh, really important that what we have to do is if you want to get from A to B, you have to understand the means by which you get there and the time frame in which it's possible, by the way. Uh, you know, what's happening with electric cars now is really interesting to me because it's going to play absolute havoc with the conventional car industry as lots of people effectively hold on to their old cars while not knowing which where to jump next. They know that the next jump may have to be to something that's hybrid or electric, but because they don't yet know where to jump, as a result, they're holding on to their old cars artificially. And so you know, understanding all those things that may happen, I think, you know, how do you get people to install solar panels is a really interesting question. Now, you know, my argument is what we really need is John Lewis to sell and install solar panels. Mm. You know, you know, the, yeah. uh, you know, I, 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 that actually the, it's very interesting because marketing is much, I'll, I can almost end on this. Marketing is much more important to innovation than innovators think it is. You know, any fool can invent something at some level. Uh, getting people to adopt it is often the more difficult challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think Uber and Dyson and so forth may largely be marketing um, successes, which are then written by Harvard Business Review as though they were business successes. Yeah, it's easy to post-rationalise and tell a completely different story. Oh, yeah, you can always do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Dyson satisfies the, the market need for really expensive, transparent vacuum cleaners that look cool. <laughs> no one knew that fucking thing existed until Dyson came along. <laughs> exactly that. So lastly, we always dedicate every show to someone and we bestow or hospital pass that honour, depending on your view, to our guest who also has to give their reason why. Actually... Uh, I'll I'll do the obvious thing and dedicate it to my wife who made the fantastic and I think deal-breaking suggestion uh, that my book consists of lots of short chapters. And the truth of the matter is, is that uh, if you spent your whole life as a copywriter, you become very good, and also writing The Spectator, you become very good at 600 words, 1,000 words, 500 words, etc. Your capacity for doing large-scale structure. And what I did is I did the large-scale structure, which sort of worked. But then actually, my wife suggested I reimpose, keep the large tail structure, but actually pretend there isn't a large tail structure and break it up into lots of short um, uh, chapters, which I think makes it inordinately more readable. Um, and actually, I think there's a, I think that was an incredibly, incredibly valuable suggestion. Absolutely. And whose idea was it for you to narrate the audiobook? Oh, me. Um, partly because. If you have the audiobook narrated by an actor or audiobook reader, the entire focus, 100%, is on fidelity to the original text. So you can't even change a do not into a don't. You can't add little verbal asides or little things. You can't change the phraseology or even the tonality or reframe a sentence so that it's better spoken than read. And so it's only the author. They will actually ring up an author and say, is it okay if we change do not to don't? Okay, well, I, I didn't want to be rung up 17 times with stupid questions. But also, the freedom to recast a sentence so that it's speech-friendly rather than text-friendly strikes me as in, immensely important in terms of uh, how, you, um, uh, how you do the book. Uh, well, I've really enjoyed the audio book. Oh, good to um, hear. I have both. Uh, but no, the audio book is, um, is, is, is fantastic. I think I'm going to get slightly more royalties from the audio book, so plug ahead. <laughs>
I will do. So, Rory, as a final call to action, um, everyone listening, head over to calltoaction.co. We'll share everything, including links to the audiobook version of Alchemy and everything else we've discussed. How else can people get more Rory Sutherland? Um, uh, if you, gosh, good question. If you Google me and the month and the year, most of my speaking events that are public will be, uh, later on coming up, there's a How To Academy talk, I think in September, October. So that's the thing. Look up How To Account, uh, Academy and I should be talking. It's a second version of a talk I gave earlier in the year for uh, the spillover audience. I gave the earlier one at the Royal Institution. And I think uh, that might be the best thing to Google for now. Fantastic. And also, we haven't had time to cover it, sadly, on this recording, but I, I couldn't recommend um, Rory's talk. I think it was a Wired event on the topic of placebos. I couldn't recommend that enough. It's it's absolutely fantastic. So maybe absolutely start with joy. that. We're very happy to do that. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Rory, to, for joining. It's been a, a real pleasure and a privilege to talk pleasure. to you. Pleasure. Likewise. See you soon. And thank you very much for the invitation. And thank you to everyone listening. Please continue to share and review to get in touch with questions to put to our guests or to give us feedback of any flavour. Simply email us at hello at calltoaction.co. Try and I try and I try.